Matthew chapter 2, it's on page 966 in the Black Bibles. And we're good. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets, that he would be called a Nazarene. It'd be great to keep your Bible open at Matthew 2 if you've got one handy. I've got a frustration to share with you this morning, kind of a, a bit of a niggle for me, something that's becoming more and more encouraged, more and more popular in our culture, I think. And that's the whole, you got this saying, you know, you got this. Um, I don't know if you've heard it, many of you will have, many of you maybe not. It's supposed to be an encouragement to say to your friend at the gym who's trying to get fit or lose weight and, you know, you got this man, uh, you can do it. Maybe it's your friend who's going for a job interview and you say, you've got this girl. 
Um, but I think there's a great danger for us, actually, as Christians in this way of thinking. It can mean, you know, all the best. Um, I hope it goes well. But there can also be an uncaring, oh, she'll be right mate mentality. You know, I, I don't want to actually engage with you too much relationally. So I'll just say, oh, you got this, you'll be right, and off you go. Um, he says to his friend, I've got a job interview to go through, through and I've got a job interview I'm going for and I'm genuinely quite scared. And his mate says, oh, you got this, you know, you'll be right. Um, when actually he really wants prayer from his Christian brother at that moment for the job interview and some care. Um, more dangerously, I think, is the concept that at the end of the day, when the storm comes, when life sucks, when we're really down, we look to ourselves for strength, even as Christians. We say to ourselves, you know, you, you can do this, gird up your loins, you've got this. You can do it. Um, or worse, we say to a Christian friend who's really struggling, oh, you got this, you'll be right. I think that's a really bad attitude and a great danger. And I think it's increasingly common in our culture. Um, there's even a book being written for teenage girls called You Got This. And um, part of the blurb says this by the author, it's a book for the teenage girl in me and for every teenage girl out there because the most powerful thing you can be when you grow up is yourself. There's a great encouragement to look to ourselves for inner strength and that's not Christian. There's a subtle but steady movement in the church away from the theological concept that God is sovereign, that God's in control, that God has the power, that God gives and God takes away. And as destructive and devastating as the bushfires were, and they were, I suspect this will bring them to an end in New South Wales. WA is still struggling with bushfires. The thick silver lining of the bushfires was the thousands of people who turned to God in prayer. Many reporting they turned to God in prayer for the first time or for a long time. They looked to God, the one who could do something about it, and as we can hear, the one who's done something about it. The experts were predicting the rains would come in April, and here they are the first week in February. Here's a question to consider. Do you really believe that God is in control of all things and that it is God who saves? Or when the chips are down, do you look to yourself? Do you look to inner strength? Do you try to gird up your own loins to go on in life? If your answer is yes, I believe God is in control of all things, does your prayer life this past week reflect that truth? Maybe it does, praise God. Perhaps it doesn't. Perhaps you're depending on yourself rather than God. No doubt many of you firmly trust in God as sovereign and your prayer lives reflect that. And many of you, no doubt, say that you believe in a sovereign God, but your prayer life doesn't reflect that. You're actually looking to yourself most of the time. 
No doubt for many of you, life is good at the moment, and that's great. No doubt for many of you, you feel more than just a little out of control of life at the moment. A fact of life is things don't always go smoothly, and you've been alive long enough, you'll know that. Things go bad, and it's often that's when we pray, and things go bad. But then things settle down, and we fail to pray. We start to think we're in control again. I'm confident that when things go bad and we pray, and things turn around, it's because God answers prayer. For us this morning, I hope Matthew 2 reminds us that God is good and in total control so that you'll be encouraged in either your already healthy prayer life or you'll be motivated to start praying today. And I'm going to pray right now. Please join me. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are in control of all things. And God, we pray that we, you will show that to us as we look at Matthew chapter 2 this morning. We will see a good and loving God who has things under control, that we might be moved to depend on you more in prayer. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. My sermon's in two halves. There's an outline in your handouts if you want to take notes or just follow along. The first half is God's King revealed from verses 1 to 12. And the second half is God's King concealed from verses 13 to 23. So first point is God's King revealed. The birth of Jesus is very efficient in Matthew's gospel. You may have noticed there's no stable, there's no shepherds. There's just the statement, he was born in Bethlehem in the time of King Herod, and that's Matthew's primary interest. (coughs) Bethlehem had a long history in Israel. Uh, It was here that Jacob buried his beloved Rachel when she died giving birth to Benjamin. It was here that Benjamin's descendant, David, was born. (coughs) Forever afterwards... It would be known as the city of David. What is more appropriate than for David's great descendant to be born here, as Micah prophesied? But another king was in charge in Bethlehem, and indeed all of Galilee and Judea, and his name was King Herod. And we'll see that King Herod is, well, less than pleased that Jesus has arrived on the scene, and some are calling him king. But that's the norm for Jesus, isn't it? He divides people. Thank you so much. Um, You either love Jesus or hate Jesus. Apathy isn't an option when it comes to Jesus. Apathy is not an option when it comes to Jesus. You either love him or hate him. You must love, bow down and worship him. Or reject him, and in doing so, hate him. In these first 12 verses, the Magi and King Herod represent the only two possible responses to Jesus in their extremes. And the question for you is, of course, which response do you most relate to? Do you most relate to King, the Magi's response, or do you most relate to King Herod's response to Jesus? A tremendous amount of legend has concentrated around these magi. There is no reason to suppose that there were three of them or that they were kings or that we know their names despite the Christmas carol, We Three Kings. For centuries, the magi had been a tribe of priests in Persia. But the name had also come to apply to magicians and astrologers such as Simon 
Majors, check out Acts chapter 8, and also Elamas, check out Acts chapter 13 for some other Magi in the Bible. They, were, they saw this amazing star in the West, and they were impressed by it, so impressed that the Magi journeyed to see the star. They actually journeyed for weeks, possibly months, to see this star. Is it not perfectly astonishing that men with so little to go on, just a star, should venture so far, endure such hardships in travel, and face such uncertainties to find the one to whom the star pointed? Is that not amazing that they did that? We ventured to Mount Annam Pools yesterday on the hunch that because of the foul weather, no one would be there. And we couldn't be more wrong. It seemed that everybody in the MacArthur district had the same idea to go to Mount Annam Pools because the weather was foul and there was nothing else to do. So we were there with our friends and everyone else in the MacArthur, I'm sure, except for you guys. Um, most of you guys. Um, the Magi's hunch is definitely more impressive than that, but I think they had less to go on. I've got a bit of local knowledge and whatnot. They saw this star in the west. They heard rumors of a king, and they traveled for thousands of kilometers to see what this is all about. They traveled to the birth of the Savior. And what is more, they wanted to give him costly gifts and the worship of their hearts. They even recognized him as king of the Jews, a title which strikingly contrasts that with Herod's position as the local king. And that title does not recur in Matthew's gospel until Jesus' crucifixion. The Magi, in a sense, recognize him as the coming Messiah who would die for the sins of the world. It's amazing. Herod held jealously to his kingship by might of arms and by bitter repressive efforts, Jesus showed his kingship by his self-sacrifice for others. Stark contrast between these two kings. I wonder, to what ends would you be willing to go yourself to lay your eyes on Jesus? What ends would you be willing to go to shower him with gifts and to bow down and worship him? To what ends do you go to show your great love for him? The wise men sought Jesus with their whole hearts. And it is a wise man or woman today who does the same. That's the Magi. On the other hand, we have King Herod and the religious leaders. Herod's response was hatred and fear to Jesus. Herod hated anything and anyone that challenged or threatened his self-centered longing for power. And he feared any threat of a possible rival, however improbable. The lust for power blunted the better qualities of Herod's character. And power still has this corrupting tendency today. Think about Hitler's Germany, Stalin's Russia. Saddam's Iraq and Kim Jong-un's North Korea, which show us the lengths to which self-seeking can go against what is known to be right. Then there are the Jewish priests and scribes. 
These are the religious leaders of the day. And their attitude is just as astonishing as the Magi, though in the opposite way. The chief priests and scribes supposedly knew the Bible. They knew the scriptures. They had no problem in answering Herod when he wanted to know where the child would be born. They came back with the answer, Micah 5, chapter 2. He'll be born in Bethlehem, king, of course. But did they go to greet him? These religious leaders know the king is coming. They know where he is. But did they lift a sandal to go and see him? No. This has actually never occurred to me before. The supposed men of God, leaders of God, didn't go to see Jesus. Unbelievable. The great Jewish Messiah, they've been waiting 400 years for this moment. And they couldn't be bothered getting off the recliner and turning off Netflix to go and see him. They knew it all in their heads and they did nothing about it with their hearts. And that is a characteristic danger for ministers. It's a characteristic danger for people who are Bible scholars in any age. Their apathy towards Jesus hardened into outright opposition against Jesus. And in the end, became a frenzied lust for blood, as you, as you read on and you see in Matthew's Gospel. Their apathy hardened into outright opposition. And the same can be said for complacency. Do not rest on the laurel that you've grown up in church your whole life and heard it all before and don't need to hear it again. The scribes and Pharisees are an awesome warning that knowledge is no substitute for obedience. Knowledge is no substitute for obedience. The Magi were a wonderful example of an appropriate response to Jesus. They journeyed, they found the child with his mother, they gave him their offerings, they gave him the worship of their hearts. And how significant those offerings were, if you remember what they were. I said this morning, gold, frankincense and myrrh. Gold is a gift who is fit for a king, and here lies the king in baby's clothes. Frankincense was in constant use by the priests in the temple. And the ultimate priest, the one who would make final reconciliation between God and humankind, lay before them. Myrrh was used to embalm the dead. And he lies the one who will die for the sins of many and rise to new life. In those three gifts, the Magi saw who he is, what he came to do, and what it would cost him. And like the wise men, we bow in wonder before a wondrous God who loves us so much as to send his son into the world. Second point, God's king concealed. I find this second section to be a great comfort in a world that's willing to murder followers of Jesus. 250 people have been murdered in Burkina Faso in nine months in this past year because they were unwilling to abandon Christianity. Last month in Nigeria, a pastor was abducted and executed for preaching the gospel. 
6,000 Christians have been murdered by Islamic extremists in Nigeria in the last five years. We can be tempted to ask, has God abandoned us? Is Jesus really worth following? The answers to those questions are found in the following verses in chapter 2. God told the Magi in a dream not to return to Herod, not to tell him where the child was, and in fact to avoid his district altogether on their way home back east. God sent an angel to Joseph who appeared to him in a dream and told him to take Mary and Jesus to Egypt to hide from Herod who wanted Jesus dead. Chapter 2, verse 13. And, Jesus com- and Joseph complied with the angel's wishes and took his family down to Egypt. It wasn't unusual for Jews to go to Egypt. There's a, in Alexandria, in Egypt, in those days, there's about a million Jews living there. So it's not unusual for a Jewish family to go down to Egypt, and they, were, they weren't alone. There was lots of countrymen down there as well. And here, Matthew, Matthew loves to point out the correlations between the Old Testament and the New. Matthew loves to show us the way the Old Testament is fulfilled in Jesus. As he goes down to Egypt to hide, we're reminded of Moses, who hid in Egypt. As he grew up in Egypt, we're reminded of Moses, who grew up in Egypt. Moses led God's people out of Egypt. Jesus will be the one to lead God's people out of captivity to sin and death and the devil. Jesus is the new, recapitulated, much greater Moses. And Matthew's right to point that out. Now, Herod's freaking out. And if you look there, it says something interesting. Chapter 2, verse 3. When King Herod heard this, that Jesus had vanished, or Jesus had come, sorry, he was disturbed in all Jerusalem with him. So down the bottom, um, Herod organizes for all children under the age of two in Bethlehem to be murdered. When it says he was, he was disturbed in all Jerusalem, the word disturbed can mean um, uh, there's a, what's the word? There's, there's, a, there's a disturbance in the, in the city. Not necess- he's, he's frightened, but the people are, People are wondering, who is this new king? There's a disturbance. People know what's going on. So Herod organizes the murder of all the boys under age two in Bethlehem, which is probably about 20 boys. Bethlehem wasn't a very big place. It seems a terrible crime for Herod to order the murder of all the firstborn boys under the age of two. I have a son. It is a terrible crime, of course. Interestingly, it's not recorded in any of the history books because for Herod, this was like a minor misdemeanor. Such was his evil. Herod executed more than half of the Sanhedrin, more than half the religious leaders of the day had them executed. Herod executed 300 court officers just because they were bothering him. Herod executed his own wife, Mariamne, her mother, Alexandra, and his sons, Aristobulus, Alexander, and Antipater. And finally, as he lay dying, Herod organized for the murder of all of the notable men of Jerusalem in the Hippodrome so that the mourning following his death would be so great it would be worthy of his life. 
This was Herod. I'm led to believe that after he died, they called the executions off, which was great. The whole unsavory story of Herod's activity is an awesome reminder of how deeply opposition to Jesus can be rooted in the hearts of people who are not prepared to allow Jesus' gentle rule to control them. If we're determined to get our own way at all costs, we'll go to any lengths to eliminate all trace of Jesus and his claim on our lives. Now, our methods for eliminating Jesus' claim on our lives may not be as bloodthirsty and maybe more sophisticated, but not necessarily any less determined. Jeremiah is quoted in verse 18 to remind us that despite the horror, God is at work. Rachel wept for the children of Israel who were taken to exile and captivity, but their exile was not permanent. Bethlehem wept, no doubt, for the loss of their boys. But one boy was spared, the Lord Jesus. Time and again in Israel's history, we see horror by God working his good through human horror every time. Terrible things happen to the people of God today. But despite Herod's best efforts, Jesus was born. Despite the Pharisees' best efforts and the Romans' best efforts to kill him, Jesus rose from death. Despite Satan's best efforts to steal his rule, Jesus is Lord. And we are to see, as God's people, in the trials and tribulations of your life, we're to see God at work. And remember that God is at work, bringing about his good through the trials and the tribulations. We may not see it. No doubt for the people of Bethlehem, they wept. And it was hard to see God at work, but he was at work. He is at work. Herod died, and an angel again appeared to Joseph and instructed them to return to Galilee and settle in Nazareth. And hence, verse 23, it says, he'll be called a Nazarene. And if you remember John 1.46, it says, can anything good come from Nazareth? Nazareth is a little backwater town where no one of any significance has ever come from. And here Jesus is again concealed until the proper time when he will come forth to preach the good news and die for the sins of the world. God reveals his great saviour to the world and then conceals him in Egypt and then Nazareth until the proper time. And you can think wrongly that God's not at work, but he is working his good all the time. Two points of application to finish. Firstly, Trust God's continuity and faithfulness and expect the miraculous at the same time. In this passage, we see a God who's faithful. Matthew shows us how the Old Testament's fulfilled in Christ. Hosea's quoted in chapter 2, verse 15, Jeremiah in verse 18, and there's many more to come as you read on. Jesus is the great Messiah prophesied from on old. 
God's been faithfully bringing his son into the world through Abraham, through David, illustratively through Moses. And now here he is. God is faithful. You can trust God at his word. He will keep his word every time. There is a reassuring monotony about the Christian life that we plod along each day, hear God's word in the Bible, obey it, depend on him in prayer, knowing we're headed for the heavenly city. There's a dependable monotony to the Christian life. But in saying that, God also is a God of surprises who works the miraculous. And we should expect that too. And I I hope you've seen that in your life, that God works surprisingly, even miraculously at times. Herod held jealously to his kingship by might of arms, as world leaders do today. And as we've seen employers even doing today. More and more, it seems that employers leading companies use strength of arms to motivate people rather than love and care. I hear people tell me all the time they're struggling with their boss who doesn't care for them. They lord it over their staff, motivating through fear rather than love. Jesus showed his kingship by self-sacrifice of others. That's surprising. At Calvary, when he died on the cross, he demonstrated that the weakness of God is more powerful than the wisdom of human beings. And the Magi seem to be the ones who understand that. The well-educated scribes and Pharisees, not so much. The faith of the Magi, their insight, their wholehearted search, their worship is amazing, don't you think? It is one of the many surprises in Matthew's Gospel. The king is worshipped by magicians from the east rather than his own people, In Jerusalem. Incredible. The king escapes to Egypt and then settles into a backwater town rather than a palace. Surprising. The king dies in order to serve his people rather than forcing them to serve him to death. Surprising. God is a God of surprises. If you think you can predict God's actions, think again. We should expect God to act in surprising ways in our life. When I was 20 years old, I was an apprentice electrician and I did not follow Jesus. 20 years later, I had led a team of wonderful Christians to plant a church in Gregory Hills. That was surprising. If you said to me back in the factory in 1998, One day you'll plant a church, Gav. I would have laughed in your face. But here I am. God is a God of surprises. Secondly, we must depend on God through prayer. Even in opposition. You see in the passage, I'm going to wrap up quickly because you can barely hear me. We see in the passage, there's massive turmoil. Herod's in charge, he's killing people, he's killing Christians, he's killing babies. Jesus has run away, it seems. You'd be right to think that God's lost control. And maybe in your life, there are these moments of turmoil and heartache and hardship, and you feel like, where's God in all this? But this reminds us that God is constantly at work for the good of his people, bringing about his good purposes. 
So we're right to prayerfully continue to depend on him in that, especially if you're finding opposition from other people. I'm going to leave you with two things to do, because you really can't hear me now. Here they are. Two things to do. Over morning tea and lunch, think of a way that God's worked surprisingly in your life, if there is one, and share it with a friend over morning tea or lunch. Two, take a minute now. What's one area of your life where you mistakenly think that you're in total control and you really need to pray more? Is it as a parent? Is it as an evangelist? Is it in your marriage? Is it in your job? Is it something else? Let me pray quickly now that you can take a minute and then we'll sing. Loving Father and Almighty God, we thank you that you are good and in control. We thank you for the rain that you've sent to quench our drought-ridden land, to extinguish our devastating fires. And Lord, we thank you that you are always at work for the good of your people. And we thank you for the reminder of that this morning. And Lord, help us to depend on that prayerfully. Help us to depend on you prayerfully in all things. And Lord, may we enjoy your faithful consistency. If we listen to your word, if we pray, if we trust and obey, you will care for us. And Lord, by your Holy Spirit, keep us alert to surprises as you work in our lives in ways we're not expecting to our good. May we welcome those surprises faithfully. In Jesus' name, amen. Take a minute now. John will have a little tinkle on the guitar. I'm going to hop in my boat and head over to Harrington Park to preach, and I'll see you again for lunch. I'll be back.